Free Your Inner Guru is a listener-supported show. Supporting the podcast is also designed to support you by keeping the episodes free of ads, but also with rewards for your donation like the Free Your Inner Guru guidebook, a private listener forum, and live monthly Q&A sessions. To become a supporting member, you can visit patreon.com forward slash free your inner guru. Welcome to Free Your Inner Guru. I'm your host, Laura Tucker. This podcast is a place where we have big conversations about conscious leadership, personal development, and the self-help industry. Conscious leadership is a style of leadership that requires self-awareness and a strong desire to empower others. And it also requires walking your talk on a day-to-day basis. And part of this journey lies in your relationship with your body. On today's episode, Carly Pollock joins me. Carly is the author of Feed Your Soul. Carly and I explore why so many people experience wellness as a battle between two voices, our compassionate higher self and our obsessive punishing lower self, and why our relationship with food is a mirror for where we are on our spiritual path. If you know someone who would enjoy this conversation, I would love it if you would share it out there on social media or uh, one-to-one. If you follow the links back to the podcast website, there's every way possible to share. And if you're feeling generous, I would be so grateful um, if you took a few moments to leave a review. It's been a while since we've had fresh reviews on Free Your Inner Guru and it occurs to me it's because I haven't asked in a while. So um, wherever you are in the world, reviews are always appreciated. They're great feedback for me, but they also help the podcast um, be found. So um, on that note, I will introduce you to Carly and our big conversation about feeding your soul from the inside out. Enjoy. Carly Pollock is the founder of Nutritional Wisdom, a thriving private practice based in Austin, Texas. A certified clinical nutritionist with a master's degree in holistic nutrition, Carly has been awarded the best nutritionist in Austin five years running and has helped over 10,000 people achieve their health and happiness goals. I just finished Carly's new book, Feed Your Soul, and I'm looking forward to having a great big conversation with you, Carly, about wellness, nutrition, and what it all has to do with spirituality and understanding our place in the universe. Carly, welcome to the Free Your Inner Guru podcast. Oh, I'm so excited. Thank you so much. I just want to jump right in to make the most use of our time. And you said something right towards the end of the book, and it was a phrase that caught my attention. I thought, oh, there it is. There's our jump in point. It's, you said, back when I was at war with my body. What can you tell us what that was like and how that's informed, brought you on your own journey and informs your work today? War with my body looks like a constant inner chaotic a verbal battle between two sides, the part of me that is reckless, the part of me that identifies as a foodie who should be able to eat whatever she wants and not answer to anyone, uh, the victim part of me as to why I am so sensitive to so many foods and uh, why I'm not naturally thin, battling with what I call in the book, my higher self. And the part of me that is wise, all-knowing, compassionate, 
who has extreme clarity about what she wants, who is motivated, uh, who is lit up by the deeper meaning in all things, the, 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 the part of me that really rings true for success. So the war is, is the battle between two voices, which we've all been there. Eat it. Don't eat it. Don't press snooze. Screw it. You got to live sort of thing. And there's not only that, but there is the battle of the war being um, you know, part of war is punishment. And so the punishment of eating too much on the weekends and then punishing myself with a grueling workout that while I'm on the treadmill thinking I'm so tired or my knees hurt so badly that that voice comes through and says, good, you deserve this. Remember what you ate this weekend. You ate an entire bag of potato chips and a 12 inch sub by yourself. You better, you know, feel that burn. And, you know, that was my story week after week, like a diet-induced groundhog day. And that war is something that is just uh, weakens you and it weakens your spirit, but you don't know any different. So you just continue to do what you do. And, and we live in a culture that encourages all the doing, wouldn't you say? I mean, we're completely doers and not beers. And the number one tool to changing any habit, in my opinion, the first and and number one tool is to bring awareness to it. And when you're so busy doing all of the time and awareness can only live in in being, you know who said this, Janine Roth, and she wrote Women, Food, and God, very much a, a predecessor to this book. And she said, obsessiveness and awareness cannot coexist. And it really is so true when you're so busy being obsessed about the food and the calories and the workouts. I mean, I would lay in bed at night and and I wonder if this resonates with you. And let's say it's a Thursday and I would lay in bed before falling asleep and I would go, okay, Monday workout, Tuesday, no, Wednesday workout, Monday I had this free meal, Tuesday I, I ate chips. And it was just like this constant obsessive inventory as to how I was doing to answer that ever- elusive and chronic question of, am I enough? You know, can I be nice to myself today? If the scale tells me yes or no, or my obsessive, um, chron, uh, of the food. And, um, the idea that obsessiveness and awareness cannot coexist really hit somewhere deep for me because I've been on both sides of it. Mm, that's so powerful. Um, what happened to shift that for you? Do you remember like a moment where you tapped into your inner wisdom or really started to become more connected? Because we're often brought there by an event or circum- circumstances crossing a threshold. It was a bunch of small moments instead of having this, you know, and, and part of me wishes, I think it's cooler to have this epic moment. Oh, I had this event that happened. And from that day on, you know, I was forever changed. And I find that for most people, it actually happens the way it happened for me, which is a string of really small moments. And you don't really recognize that they're happening until you look back after a period of time and say, wow, I'm I'm really so different than I was before. And my beliefs are very different. The very first small moment I remember was to wake up on a Monday, which was the same 
pendulum swing that I had. And every week I put myself into food prison and I counted my almonds and I measured my snacks. And, and then on the weekend, I would have to break free with reckless abandonment. It was like, I couldn't be in prison anymore. I was so sick of cooking and eating my, you know, low fat yogurt and granola or whatever it was. And on the weekend I would binge. And then Sunday was always a night where my anxiety would be highest because I knew it was, it was time that, you know, what do they say? Pay the piper. It was like, I knew that the shackles were going to come back on on Monday. And so even if I wasn't hungry, there was this feeling of, I need to pack it in, you know, as much food as I can get in Sunday night, because on Monday I'm going to see the light and I'm going to start a diet with the hopefulness and promise that it's going to stick beyond Friday. And I remember this moment of waking up on Monday in the same place, the heaviest, you know, bloat, more, most bloated that I was the whole week and thinking, what I'm doing isn't working. And what I'm doing is focusing on the food and the movement. And so this weight loss, this permanent change, it has to be about something else because success leaves clues. And, and that was kind of the first moment that I was like, mm, successful people who have lost weight and kept it off aren't doing what I'm doing. They don't yo-yo like I do. They don't have a panic Sunday night as I do. I need to do something else. And so then at some point you started looking inside. You started, because I read in Feed Your Soul that food is a mirror for where I was on my spiritual path. And I'm curious about that. And I'm curious of whether or not you think that's true for everyone. I do. You know, and I'm always willing to be wrong, always, always. And there's always exceptions to every rule. But I do believe that your plate is a reflection of your inner state. Even for people who are naturally thin, and therefore, vanity is not driving them to uh, eat clean. If they feel disconnected in their spiritual path, their plate will be reflective of that. When you are really spiritually connected, the concept that we've all heard before that your body is a temple, it has a different meaning. And you don't want to put Cheetos in your body when you're really connected, uh, whether it's because you want to lose weight or just because you want to continue to vibrate at a frequency that putting that low vibration, low frequency food does not allow you to do. But yes, you know, when I said my spiritual path where I was, was a reflection of where I was in my health, how many of us are inconsistent with our healthy eating patterns. We're also inconsistent with our meditation, our journaling, our affirmations, our visualizations. And, you know, we're human. I'm, I can be inconsistent at times as well, but learning the lessons and having it be less and less inconsistency, you'll start to notice a parallel with how you feed yourself, whether you're feeding yourself with food thoughts uh, and, and your spiritual path and how connected you feel. So I don't know if you saw that I was smirking because of course we can see each other. I'm going to tell a little story about, about an hour ago when I was reading to the end of the book, cause I was, I was on a mission and you're talking about that very cycle and the cycles of awareness. And, and I can't even recall exactly what the statement was, but this dark chocolate was calling me from across the room. And I was, and I was having that inner battle of, 
is this congruent? Is this not congruent? Is this congruent? And, um, and I wish I could tell you that I didn't get up and go and grab the chocolate. I did. It's, it's one of my vices, but it was funny because I was, it was the, actually the awareness of going, okay, so here's your chocolate intake for the day, because I don't think I've ever mentioned it on this podcast before, but I eat a bit of chocolate just about every day. Whereas I used to binge chocolate and eat it like it was a staple food. So yeah. I'm okay with a square or two of chocolate while I'm reading about you, reading you talking about food. Oh, well, you know, I'm going to tell you two very quick, funny stories. One is that the other week, so I have an infant and the, uh, so I haven't slept in two years <laughs> and, uh, because you don't sleep when you're pregnant either, but she, uh, I was rocking her to sleep and she was teething and she was having trouble falling asleep. And for any parent listening or watching, it's just so frustrating when you, you know, your baby needs to nap and they're fighting it and you have 8 million things you need to do out there. So you're just like, go to sleep so we can both get on with our lives. And so I was so frustrated and I knew that there were cookies in the house, which there's never, this is a contraband free house because I have so many trigger foods. It's like, I'm a goldfish. If I see it, I eat it. You know, it's like, keep it in the, I keep it out of the house is one of my loving boundaries for how I set myself up for success. But my, my husband had brought these cookies into the house. And so I put her down in the crib. She was crying. Couldn't take it anymore. I walked right out right to the cookies. And then I shoved two cookies in my mouth, like very quickly, not it, not enjoying it. Very frantic. Um, I don't know that I chewed it. I'm surprised he did not choke on one of the cookies. And after taking the inventory, and even if it's like a second after, even as I'm swallowing this, it was like, I am using food as a way to distract, numb, falsely comfort. And I say falsely comfort because it never really comforts us. It really just numbs us and distracts us. And after I'm going to have two problems, not one. I still have a crying baby in a crib that I need to go back in and rock. And now I'm going to feel bloated and uncomfortable because these cookies, you know, had gluten and dairy and all these things that I typically don't eat. So the teacher, and I just want everyone to know, I am a teacher of this. I lead workshops on conscious eating. I wrote a book about this, people. And it still happens day in and day out. And it's a beautiful lesson for me. And instead of getting frustrated about it, and this might be a, a big takeaway for people today, is instead of judging yourself or being frustrated about it, I tend to be grateful for these lessons. And it's only because I've been able to separate myself from the obsession of my body of a physical, um, what it looks like physically to say, okay, what can this teach me more deeply about myself? The truth is I wasn't just frustrated because she wasn't going down. I hadn't meditated. I hadn't journaled. Like the self-care wasn't there. So I wasn't grounded. So something little like that unearthed me very quickly, whereas we noticed the traffic, a delayed flight, a ornery coworker, these things, when you feel like your emotional wellness is easily being tripped up by external triggers, 
you need to look at where you are in your spiritual practice and strengthen it. So it's not about the cookies, but the cookies were a beautiful teacher for me to go, where are you in your spiritual practice right now? Where does your focus need to be? Not on the cookie, because it had really nothing to do with that. And your chocolate example is actually different because it wasn't a manic behavior. You were making a conscious decision to have your chocolate for the day now instead of later. Now, if 9.30 p.m. you're on the couch going chocolate, 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 you have an opportunity to do the inventory like I had to do on the cookies. And so it's just, you know, it's just like it's, it's letting food be a guide instead of attaching so deeply to the fact that I may have eaten this many calories and how am I going to work that off? And, oh, I'm going to be in a bathing suit on Friday. So how can I, you know, binge, uh, diet until Friday and, and those sort of obsessive thoughts. And I know I said two stories, but I don't remember the other one. So it'll come to me. (laughs) Well, maybe it'll come back later. Maybe we'll come on to another one, but either way you gave a perfect entry into one of the areas that I have highlighted to talk about, because I think we both use some of this in our mutual work. And that's that idea of, um, the role that judgment plays and self-judgment judgment of others and how we can, help people understand or shine the light on the difference between um, being judgmental or having judgment for ourselves and others and practicing discernment. I see discernment as a spiritual practice. Oh, I love that. I love how you say that. Uh, I remember a while ago, I heard Tony Robbins say that you can't influence someone if he said, you can't change other people, you can only influence them and you can't influence them if you're judging them. And then I took that to be, I can't influence myself to do the most positive things for my life and my health. If I'm judging myself, you know, if I, if I, and, and what I am trying to do is through my beliefs, influence myself to get on board with, you know, with, all of the wonderful things that we do day in day day in and day out to keep us happy, healthy, and whole. And so I completely agree. I think that there is a lot of kind of confusion with this. Like you said, there's a difference between judgment because and discernment because people go, well, if I'm not judging myself, then I'm just going to do whatever. You know, I'm just going to like let loose and sit on the couch all day, and I'm not going to exercise. I'm going to eat whatever. And I think that's largely because look looked at through a different lens. You know, when you talk about Brene Brown and her work on shame and guilt, Mm -hmm. and she says guilt is an incredibly useless emotion and it doesn't, you know, it's, it's, um, and in a way it's self-judgment. And I talk about in the book, maybe it's like the inner Jew in me, but I'm like, Hey, guilt is actually a useful emotion for a second. Just like the cookies are useful in teaching me something that I need to go deeper when I feel guilty about something, I believe that's my higher self speaking down to my you know, lower self saying, hey, something just occurred, something you thought, ate, did, said that wasn't in alignment with the way you want to live your life. Take a look at this. And then I want instant forgiveness. And then I want to you know, rewrite the story and take steps forward. But what happens with guilt is we hold on to it and then we make it a story. And three days later in the shower, we're shampooing our hair, cringing at the thing we said to the coworker, you know, on a Tuesday and it's Friday. And that's where guilt is so useless. But when you call it discernment is me, you know, 
my version of that is you have to be able to call a thing a thing, call through the BS of your own mind. So I'm not saying drop the judgment and allow yourself to get away with everything. I want the meanness to go away. I want the you are not enough because to go away. I want to be able to say to myself, I love you. You're imperfectly perfect as a human. And hey, you messed up. You got to look at this. Or this doesn't feel right. You got to take responsibility. I was talking to a client earlier today and we were going through the formula that I have in the book, which is that our thoughts create our emotional state and our emotional state ultimately drives the way we behave. And we were talking about her lack of behavior, which was that she wasn't exercising consistently. And Mm -hmm. she said to me, well, when I leave work, I think to myself, what my body really needs is to be horizontal. And I started laughing. We started laughing together because it was like, what BS? She only saw it as BS when it when she said it for the first time. When she, thought, when she heard it come out of her own mouth? Yes. And I said, wait a second. You sit on your butt all day long. What are you talking about? Your body needs to be horizontal. Your body needs to move. But certainly when you say to yourself, my body needs to be horizontal, that certainly will not drive a behavior of her consistently exercising after work. So when I, the difference between judgment and being able to hold yourself to a very high standard is love. It's like you can love somebody and say, you would love your husband or your partner or your friend or your parent and just be like, hey, what you said was totally ridiculous, but I love you. And so even with the client, I said, okay, you know, do you see how that would drive? And we just started laughing. So I'm not saying oh, you lazy, you know, you're so lazy. Why, why can't you get your stuff together? You need to do it up. That's the judgment piece versus doing the, the mental work saying, you know what, if the behavior is I'm not exercising, let's work this formula backward. Then the emotion I feel towards exercise is ugh, meh. And then the thought I have towards exercise is that my body needs to be horizontal let me change this thought. So there's that discernment of like what's real versus what is the mental twist, those those limiting beliefs that we that we really do believe in the moment if we're if we're not aware that we don't have to believe everything we think. One hundred percent. And even that take that you know another step further is like I know that call to the horizontal position quite well. I mean, mentally draining, exhausting days do that to a person. But then while you're on the couch, when you could be outside or or moving around or doing something enjoyable that involves movement, it's like, well, how are you feeling about, about, how am I feeling about myself then? Well, I'm feeling kind of lazy, low energy and, um, and sluggish, which just, it, it perpetuates the myth that that's what it takes to feel good. Yeah. You know, there's, the i find and i wonder what your opinion is on this i find that right now especially for women and men are absolutely included in this conversation but it's really hard to ignore that women are are placed with such a high standard based on our magazines and our culture that it's a little bit more for us or maybe that's just my perspective cuz i am a woman but there's really these two opposite camps right now of you know the love yourself, 
no matter where you are. Don't diet. You don't need to lose weight. You are great where you are. You know, just love yourself. Female empowerment, big is beautiful, like all of that stuff. And I think that that was really born out of our suppression of us feeling like we all needed to look a certain way or we weren't allowed to love ourselves unless we, you know, looked like Heidi Klum in a bathing suit or whatever. And then you have the other end of the camp, which is, you know, how many cleanses and detoxes can you do to get to your bikini body, you know, bikini body ready. And I really don't subscribe to either of these. I find faults in both of these. And why I bring them up now is because when we talk about discernment, I of course want you to love and accept yourself where you are. Why? Because that's where you are. And if you don't love and accept yourself where you are, you will not be able to influence yourself to reach any higher level of health, vitality, and happiness. But that's not the end of the story. I want you to accept yourself and love yourself so fiercely that you start to demand more of yourself because you have lifted yourself up so much because you do respect yourself. And you say, you know what? I have the capability to do this and to have my physical body be a reflection of how much I love and care about myself. Not so that somebody else can tell me I look in a bathing suit and it makes my whole life, but so that I wear my body as, yes, this is, this is the manifestation of the work I'm doing. And you need that discernment or else, you know, how do you know? Like, where's the awareness? You bring up something that is resonating with me fiercely right now. And so I'm going to trust um, what's happening on my inside right now and, and go there. My husband, whenever he hears a story like what you said about the love yourself, no matter where you are, he gets extremely angry. And you might think that that's a bad thing, but his first wife passed away at the age of 42 of ultimately illness. And I mean, horrific illness that was associated with being extremely obese. And it's a difficult subject to approach because A, on one hand, it feels like it might not be my story to tell, but B, on the other hand, I've seen firsthand the destruction and the pain that it causes for, say, the teenage boy who lost his mom and for the husband who lost his wife. And there is something to it where, you know, I've been in, I've been in a situation where I was at in an environment with, um, in a big workshop where I was looking at somebody who I perceived to be overweight and I was looking at them with judgment. This is long before either one of these now men came into my life, but I was hoisting some of my judgment onto her because there was a, a, a lot of emphasis on the body being your vehicle and its connection to the spiritual life. And I wasn't quite getting it back then. And so I was looking, well, okay, and here's the judgment. If you're so spiritual, then how come that you're at that size. And then I find out later that that woman had lost a hundred pounds. Wow. Yeah. Right. No, I show something for me in that moment where I was like, you never know 
where someone is on their journey by looking at their body. But at some level, our bodies are an account of what is going on inside. And we might be passing through a stage or a shape on our way up so true. into the light or down into the end of this lifetime. I think you bring up an excellent point that it's not that the body is not an immediate, you know, when I say your, your plate is a reflection of your inner state, there's a lag time like this woman who her plate may be perfectly arranged with fresh organic vegetables and, and her, the fat is melting off of her body as you're looking at her, but the body is also a culmination of the past and that there is this, um, that you just never know where someone is on their path. And I do completely understand your hesitation in bringing up, you know, your pause because I've talked about this before and actually had a kind of, um, uh, kind of vulnerability hangover after talking about it, because my fear is that in talking about this, I come off as giving anyone the impression that, you know, um, that I don't want women to love themselves if they're overweight (laughs) or that big isn't beautiful. I think beauty is about, um, you know, anyone can be pretty, but true beauty is about kindness and love. And if you don't have that, it's just kind of congratulations about your face. You know, it's, it's, so I don't, um, I agree that big is beautiful if that person walks around and is beautiful. And I agree that you should love yourself, but it is that thing that it's like such a sensitive subject to say, if you are overweight, you are at risk of disease and illness and not feeling as energetic in your body. And I was having this conversation with my girlfriend because we both watched This Is Us. And we were talking about the character in that show. Do you watch the show? I don't. Okay. There's a character in the show and she's morbidly obese, morbidly. She has definitely at least 200 pounds on her. And she was interviewed saying that, you know, she loves herself and she doesn't want to lose weight. And I was saying to my friend, as much as I'm, you know, proud of her for not feeling like in order to lose weight, she would be enough in some way. I also know that she's lying to herself in other ways because it's very hard to live in a body that is carrying all of that weight. It's hard on the joints. It's hard on your energy levels. It's hard when you travel. It's, it's just hard. And I've not talked about this in the past because how easily it can be misconstrued as me thinking, it's like me saying like, everyone should be thin and then you're healthy. And I know many thin people who are like rotting black on the inside because they're naturally thin and they eat whatever they want and they don't take care of themselves and they're stressed. And so health doesn't necessarily equate to being, um, thin doesn't mean healthy, but overweight doesn't mean healthy either. And so I want people to accept where they are while simultaneously pushing for something more. I found in my own experience as well as that no matter what the, what arena we're talking about or what environment, because this is, it it feels risky to be talking about this. Um, So I'm, I'm expecting that the listener will understand that we are coming at this from compassion first Mm -hmm. and foremost. And secondly, um, that 
at some point we all deal with our physiology. It's, it's, it just is what it is. It's, it's our body, right? Whether it shows up as that or, or, you know, there's no guarantee obviously between size and, and health, because we know many, many people who are thin and, and have a heart attack run for years. And, you know, so we all have our unique mystery inside our body. That's going to unfold one way or the other. There's just no at bottom line. That's the even playing field. Yeah. I think the, the difference between those two stories and even the two um, women that I brought forth would have to be what was going on inside at the time, right? which is not even either one of our positions to comment or get into or make assumptions around, but you know, there you have two very different endings to a story and beginnings of other stories. But it's this going inside and I started off this by saying about in any other environment, you know, I'm a leadership coach. The vast majority of my clients have their own business. And so the environment that they're working on with me is their business environment. And I know from my own experience of having gone through some life altering situations, situations, my stuff played out in the business environment. That's why I do what I do now. You know, success became hard after it was always easy. And it was only at that, the the real shift, and there were many, many, many shifts and steps over time, but the real shift started to happen when I was able to start approaching self-forgiveness and compassion. And, you know, the right thing at the right time dropped into my mind around the relationship of self-care, self-love, compassion, and how we can't really be compassionate for others if we're not able to be compassionate for ourselves. And, you know, those words, even when you attach, when you say, you know, what emotion would you attach to that? Or how would you visualize that? And it feels like um, kind of a, um, the better way for me to think about it is when in order to be healthy, I know you need a ton of passion and you need drive. And I think that a lot of people, if they feel like they're not forcing themselves by the threat of fear, fear if they don't live longer or fear if they have a heart attack or fear that they never have a body that they're proud of versus the compassion. You know, when I was saying like the emotions, like those words sound very fluffy, compassion and love. And it doesn't sound like somebody out of that would then be just so enthusiastic and driven to do what they need to do. But that's the, um, that's the limiting belief because when you have those things, compassion and and self-love and self-care, it actually frees you to have that drive and passion that we need to wake up at 5.30 in the morning if that's what it is, or to, you know, cook a meal on a Thursday night after a week of, you know, really uh, working hard in your business or parenting or whatever it is we're doing. So, I equate those words with allowing me to step up and rise. Judgment is weakens us and creates that fear. So I just want people to connect that emotion of for you to be able to step up and really advocate for yourself in a really strong way. You need to get rid of the thoughts and emotions that ultimately drain you of that energy. Yeah. And sometimes the most compassionate thing that we can do for ourselves is to get back up off that couch or go and make that salad or 
haul your ass to the gym. <laughs> totally. Right. Passion isn't thing. always like write in your journal. You know, it's like, I think that that's what people think when they hear these words. That's what I'm trying to say is that are these very fluffy words for, you know, just be and there is being in a, in doing, I remember, and this was a while ago, but I remember listening to something Deepak Chopra was saying and Deepak Chopra, if people don't know, he is an entrepreneur in every sense of the word. That man owns like 11 different businesses. He's up at 4 a.m. He meditates from like 4 to 6 a.m. And then he is probably meeting after meeting. He does this stuff with Oprah. And he has this prayer in the morning that he says that he said every that he said that he says to himself every morning, which was something, and I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing like calm inner body, busy outer body. And to me, that means the being within the doing. Yes, there are times where you need to just be in meditation, in nature, in silence. But the reality of all of our lives is that we are working, we are parenting, we are, you know, um, goal setting, we're doing. And I think the ultimate goal is to find that inner being and awareness within all of the stuff we're doing. So yeah, sometimes the compassionate thing is I am going to go have this hard workout, but I'm going to be fully present the entire workout. And I'm going to be rooted in the clarity of what I want most for my life and what I deserve to experience on this earth. And therefore a workout can be a spiritual practice. It doesn't have to be journal, meditate is your spiritual practice and workout is your weight loss. The whole point of the book is how do we infuse our spiritual life and and our higher selves into permanent health changes? Let's talk about that. You provide some some building blocks for people within the book. The The book is divided and I'll just give a bit of my rundown because it's so present and fresh for me, but three parts. One is the first part is setting the stage that this is at least as much about the inner game and your mindset and how you think and feel. The second part um, is practical advice on how and what to eat. And I found it, this is going to sound like an oxymoron when it comes out of my mouth, but I found it on one part, it's, it's simple and yet there's enough there as for guidance and some really good reminders. So I want to compliment you on that, keeping it simple and keeping it, there's enough there. Enough. Yeah. 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 Impactful, simple Mm -hmm. and impactful. Thank you. Yeah. So that was great. And then part three brings it back around to um, self-acceptance, self-care and, and, and relating your, your state of health to the rest of your life and your, and your spiritual journey. So let's get into just so we don't leave it out in case people are wanting to hear wisdom about the body from you. Um, let's, let's talk about some of these building blocks. When it comes to, and I dedicate an entire chapter to diets, because I will say when I sat down to write this book, I was very clear that I didn't want to write a diet book because too much has been said in the diet world and everyone is thoroughly confused. And the last thing I wanted to do was write a book that said, this diet worked for me. It's going to work for everybody because that makes no sense whatsoever. We are all 
Uh, we all have something called biochemical individuality, which is we are as unique on the inside as we are on the outside. And for one person, a paleo type of diet would work really well for them and low carb and no dairy and whatever that may be. And then for another person being a vegan who eats a very high carbohydrate uh, diet can also thrive. And I think that thoroughly confuses people because we're most diet books put us all into one category. You're human, eat this way. And so I do dedicate. So then as I was writing the book, I said, you know what? I don't want this just to be about the mind. That's 90% of it. But 10% of it is the logistics. What do you do to balance your hormones and lose weight and have glowing skin and a flat stomach and whatever it is that you may want that, that represents to you ultimate health and vitality. So I dedicate a chapter in the book to like, okay, let's, let's call a thing a thing. <laughs> let's talk about what this is. And I would say that, you know, because writing a book for a mass audience where I don't know that so many different people are going to read it, I had to say generally what works for us and what will work for you, uh, what I know to be the base of nutrition that works for everyone, whether you are a male, female, whether you are high stress, low stress, have a history of cancer, is to eat unprocessed foods that are alive and I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment, and uh, to eat a lot of plants. And I am, I am a, when I say foods that are alive, foods that are alive and have vitamins, minerals, enzymes, cofactors, they rot and spoil very quickly. So your avocado and your fruits and vegetables and even your piece of fish, I mean, look how they give you ice just to go from the store to the house, because in that short time, it can start to spoil. Versus your gluten-free, high-fiber, vitamin-enriched cereal that you could leave in your car for six months in a plastic bag, in a cardboard box, and yet it will still be fresh for you to eat. And we're so confused because it says it's fortified with all of these vitamins and it's gluten-free and it's high-fiber and, and it's marketed to us as a health food. Yet, if we made... Um, you know, eggs with avocado and salsa and fresh greens and sprouts. If I left that on the table for six hours, I wouldn't come home and eat it. There would, it would be teeming with bacteria because bacteria like to live on things that are alive. And when you eat things that are alive, you feel alive and you fight off cancer and you feed your body. So if there's one piece of nutrition advice I could give to everyone. And I'm not um, usually a fan of blanketed advice, but this I feel very strongly in is to look at the percentage of your diet of foods that are unprocessed, not coming from a bag or a box, that you could either grow them from the earth or that they're animals that eat foods that grow from the earth and try to bring that percentage up way higher than you have it right now to about a 90-10 or 85-15. It doesn't mean that I never have a cracker or a piece of avocado toast. It's just that the majority of the food going into my body, I want to think of it being able to spoil extremely quickly, if not refrigerated. Mm. And then you go from there into, um, into there's a great bunch of sections of foods that are in and foods that are much smaller section of foods that are out than I expected. Yeah. You know, um, when it comes to my job is to also neutralize all of the dogma that we've been, you know, learning in the eighties and nineties. And even today, for example, white potato, 
why does everybody hate the white potato? Do people know that white potato actually has a lot of nutrition and is extremely similar in nutrition to a sweet potato? And the sweet potato might have a few tiny tweaks where it has this much more of vitamin, whatever. But I got to say, your sweet potato and your white potato are pretty stinking equal. Yet we've, you know, people who love potatoes like, I don't want to eat the potato. I'm going low carb. If it comes from mother nature, then I want you to second guess yourself if you've been put on a protocol that says not to eat it. Same thing with the banana. We've all had the ads pop up on Facebook, 10 reasons why you shouldn't eat a banana, or you've gone on the Atkins diet or some sort of diet that says fruit's too high sugar. Yes, it's nature's candy, but mother nature made this. It has vitamins and minerals. Whenever someone comes in to see me and they're like, oh, I'm on a diet, I'm only eating berries because they're low sugar fruit. I'm okay with you being mindful that a blueberry or strawberry has much less carbohydrate or sugar than a banana. But then to demonize the banana, it's like we're missing the point. And we do this a lot to distract ourselves from the bigger picture of doing the deeper work. We get stuck in calorie counting. We get stuck in the macronutrient. Should I be low carb, high carb, high protein, low protein? Should I eat meat? Should I not eat meat? And we actually don't realize that that stuff is not as important as doing the inner work around uh, clarity, around what you want for your life, around prep, self-care, cooking. So if I'm someone who's meant to eat meat, but I wind up eating a vegetarian diet, if all of what I'm eating is unprocessed and I'm managing my stress and drinking a lot of water and getting to sleep on time, is that really going to be as big of an issue as my mind would make it out to be. So think about somebody, you know, saying to you like, oh, I'm not eating high sugar fruit and I'm not eating any potatoes, but their stress is at a level nine and they don't exercise. It's like eat the potato <laughs> and, and look at the other things that are going to give you the biggest bang for your buck. I talk in the book about the 20% that yields 80%. Make a list of 10 things you could do to be healthy. And then I want you to put a star by the two things that you find are most important that if you did just those two things, they'd be more powerful synergistically than doing all 10 on your list. And so let's say I have a list of 10 things, drink more water, go to sleep on time, eat more vegetables, eat low sugar fruit, uh, eat pasture-raised meats, cut sugar, um, eliminate sugar, uh, exercise five times a week, whatever it is. It's like put a star by eliminate sugar. <laughs> and that that piece right there would yield you so much more than eat low sugar fruits. I like that. I'm going to do that. The, the 20 that yields 80. I, and I do it with work too. It's like, I have all these things to do on my to-do list. I could answer my emails. I could schedule this I whatever. And then it's like the two things that are going to get me furthest in productivity not all 10 because I can't do all 10 or the second I do all 10, 10 more show up in its place. And when you think about health, 
there's probably a hundred things I could put on a list. Not probably, easily I could list for you a hundred things that you could do day in and day out to be healthy, including sitting in an infrared sauna and dry brushing and oil pulling and intermittent fasting and all these buzz and drinking apple cider vinegar and starting the morning with hot water and lemon. And we've all heard it. If you subscribe to any health blogs, including my own, you're going to see all of these little tips and tricks and tools. But Go back to that list of 10. Go back to that 20%. If I'm, eat, if I'm drinking apple cider vinegar first thing in the morning to alkalize my body and lose weight, but I'm binge eating four out of seven nights a week because I'm not addressing the underlying loneliness and isolation I feel by looking at my thoughts and core beliefs and looking at the model with which I see stress and uncertainty, then really that apple cider vinegar might as well be water. It's like, what is that really doing for us? So I'm not saying, you know, screw the little things. I'm saying if you want to make permanent change and you want to make take massive action from where you are right now, let's start with the big stuff that's going to yield you a big success. Because once you have success, it's a forward moving wheel where a little bit of success creates the desire for more and more. Pardon the pun, but it's literally the low-hanging fruit, right? (laughs) I am 100% stealing that from you and (laughs) pretending like I came up with it myself. Thank you very much. You can't because it's right here on the podcast. Oh, man. Everyone listening and watching, don't say anything if you hear me saying it on some sort of media channel in the future. Just let's pretend I came up with it. You are welcome to it. And, but... But it's, it is, this is one of the reasons why I was looking forward to speaking to you so much because I was watch, going through your book, it's principle after principle after principle. It may not be the same, most of it is the same um, language around it, but it is the idea of, you know, what do we need to do to get results? And then there's, I was thinking about it um, last night thinking, okay, yeah, I'm starting to see a lot of common ground and um, and are we all writing the same book because the principles that work are the principles that, that work. And then I thought, so what if we are right? Because principles that work results and that's, and that's what you're here for. That's what I'm here for. And getting people out, out of that perfection of thinking they have to do every single freaking thing. Right. Be happy. Yeah. And it's not the case. You know, I've never shared this with anyone before. So um, this is the first time that I'll share this story. And I, and it just popped into my head when I was looking to get published. And a lot of people who are not in the world of writing books, they don't know that it actually takes a tremendous amount of effort and, and that it's far easier to self-publish a book than it is to get traditionally published. And um, the step in getting published is you write a um, proposal And then you have to find an agent that will take on the proposal. So you get rejected by all these agents. Then you find an agent that will take it on. Then the agent, uh, um, I forget the word, um, presents it basically to all of the publishing companies. And then you get rejected by a bunch of publishing companies until someone, you know, decides to take a chance on you. And the, I think I had 49 rejections before... I settled with New World, which is an amazing publishing company. And well, the answers I kept getting were, um, you know, there's so much in this field out there already. And they wanted something different. They wanted a hook. It's all those books, 10 days to 20 pounds, 
30 days to a whole new you. And what they weren't happy with is that in the book, I was basically saying, this is hard. There's no way to go around it. Like you have to do this. These are the principles. You know, uh, there, there's no pill you can take. I have, I have tools for you to make this mentally easier for you and to help it stick. But there is no 20 days to, from fat, you know, flab to fit. And, and they were saying, you know, we need something that's going to basically bait and switch people to pick up this book because people don't want to do hard work. They want some basically like answer and pipe dream. And so you saying, and, and I was kind of like, oh, has it been said? Are they not doing this because it's been said and they want something new and fresh in the way? And that was one person's answer. Like, this is all great stuff, but it's been said and we want something new and fresh. And it's like, there is nothing new and fresh. There's not going to be some new something that, that people go, oh, we've been missing this thing our whole lives. This is how you lose weight and keep it off. And it's so much easier than taking care of yourself and doing spiritual work and, you know, questioning what you think and, you know, um, taking care of yourself and incorporating your values with how you spend your time and getting clear and calling yourself on the bullshit. And, you know, and it just reminded me of you saying that, you know, reading this and going, wow, these principles are here and they're here for business. They're here for health. They're here for like, it's, this is what people need to hear. And, you know, we've all, picked up that book or watched that show or read that blog that was, or clicked on that ad that was promising something quick because we were desperate only to come back to the realization that it takes hard work. And if anybody knows that it's going to be Oprah who has more money in the entire world can find the quick fix. And ultimately she's got to do the work too. So if Oprah's got to do the work, we got to do the work. Well, and I think what is so brilliant about where this has wound up is that it is it it is almost like one series of truths many voices because the chatter that's out there is so loud so pervasive is so distracting numbing you name it yeah. and that's what and 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 that's including within the self-help industry, which is a whole other interview I'll have you back to do another time um, but you know there's I found reassurance in that I found. And I think that's where people who are encourage people to do the work, to go deep, to get to your core values, because the power of going to your core, there's nothing that that compares. And sometimes life forces us there by showing us something that we don't like. And that, that could be anything from a health crisis to a life crisis to a business crisis but it's an absolute, it's a moment for that introspection, that um, wisdom to come in. And then once you start to tap into that, then you've got your inner compass. Yeah. If someone has in their core, a belief about stress, that they are unsafe, and that the only way to deal with uncertainty is to control, then no Whole 30 cleanse, no exercise program, no detox is ever going to get them to a place where they feel ultimately healthy because they will always wind up using food to comfort or distract from the core belief about how they manage stress. That's why it's so all-encompassing. There's an entire chapter in the book about stress and not just managing it, but using mental tools to eliminate it, to allow it, just like the cookie story in the beginning, it's just a trigger 
I am stressed. Okay. I need to do deep work. I ate the cookies. I need to do deep work. And then going and doing that work, which is rewriting our beliefs, taking inventory, uh, you know, um, coming up with new ways to arrive at the outcome we're really looking for. And it's just all connected. So you're right. It's like the core of this is that we need to neutralize food. Food is not something that I want you to feel like you need to eat robotically. As a culture, we still celebrate with food. We mourn with food. I don't want to take, I don't want to take the life of food away. I want to take the power away. And that neutralizing food allows it to be exactly what it is, something that um, used ideally mostly for physical hunger, sometimes to celebrate or to shift emotion when there's no consequence attached to it, which means that it's, it's in moderation, like a dessert. We never eat dessert when we're physically hungry, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't ever eat dessert. It just means that we can only eat it enough times without there being a consequence attached. So maybe for someone that's once a week, twice a week, depending on their body. Uh, you know, for you, a little bit of chocolate every day, there's no consequence attached and you're getting magnesium in that chocolate and you're getting good antioxidants in that chocolate. There's, there's not a problem here. No, but, I, and, but I'm also not, I'm also, um, and this would be a more recent awareness around the whole chocolate piece. I'm also not any longer buying into it as the ultimate antioxidant and an actual right. health food. Right. Like, don't you love when people are drinking a glass of wine, they go antioxidants. I'm like, eat a bunch of grapes. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's like, eat some grapes. Yeah. You're good. But yes. And, and although before when you said you used to binge on it, it wasn't this, hey, I'm going to have this little bit of chocolate and put it in my mouth and let it melt and have this foodie experience. And I'm going to do it in moderation with all of these other foods that I'm eating that are extremely life-giving and low sugar. And I'm going to exercise and do all these things where it's really imbalanced. When it's out of balance and there's a consequence there, it's giving you anxiety because it has caffeine or it's, you know, or it's putting weight on, or you then feel addicted to something. That's when it can be a guide for you to look deeper. So, you know, Anytime you feel like food has power, I just challenge and invite everybody listening and, and watching to, uh, to instead of going into judgment, to instead of going into uh, restriction or put yourself on a diet that promises that it would cure you of, of said vice, that you actually take a look at emotionally what it's, how it's serving you. And then you can find something that serves you in that same way without the consequence. You've very elegantly brought to one of the things that'll be a perfect way to pull this entire conversation together, which is your, um, your thoughts on food freedom and boundaries. The lower level of food freedom and the level that I used the the definition I used to give it was that food freedom was I could eat whatever I want. I'm free to eat whatever, no diet here. And that level, that, that introductory level, that shallow level of food freedom creates body prison. Because when you eat whatever you want, you will be left to crave the foods that are engineered to be addictive, sugar, salt, fat, uh, fried, processed foods. The more enlightened or 
more intermediate level of food freedom by definition is I can eat whatever I want. I choose not to. I choose to create loving boundaries based on my body's feedback. If I eat dairy and then I don't poop for three days, that's my body telling me, you don't like dairy. This doesn't work for us. And then I say, okay, I'm going to make a loving boundary around this. And that my level of food freedom from the outside looking in may look like, oh, you don't eat this, 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 but it creates body freedom for me. And that is ultimate freedom. So it's not a, I can't eat this. I can eat whatever I want. I can eat French fries three times a day if I want. It's a choice to not give up what I want most for what my mind is saying I want right now for that short-term pleasure that is so ephemeral that it warrants that we do it again and again and again. And then it creates a pattern where food has more power than we give it. And that is not food freedom, truly. The power seems to be in making the choices that align with both your core values and your physiology. Absolutely. Because we can all probably think of somebody that we know, if not ourselves, that if they eat something that they shouldn't, they're going to be literally restricted because they're feeling so poorly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, it's funny, my husband and I, I'm a super sensitive digestive. I'm like a super sensitive flower. He always calls me the delicate flower. If I, you know, gluten, dairy, sugar, fried foods, as like, I always have a stomach ache. I'm bloated after I get constipated or I have diarrhea. He, on the other hand, could truly swallow a rock and it's like, would not feel it at all. I always say he could eat rocks, like he could eat anything. And so his loving boundaries around food are different than mine. I don't sit here in the dogma as saying everyone needs to eat exactly the same, or it has to be um, this, you know, the same for him as clean as it does for me. As soon as he does something that creates a consequence, he now has his body present a boundary. So instead of someone outside of you or a book or a person, you know, Feed Your Soul is really a book about teaching you how to learn your own boundaries, not telling you, hey, never met you in my life, but I'm going to write a book telling you exactly what I think you need to eat or not eat. So it's different for everyone. And even more so, it's different for the same person at different seasons in their life. And that's really hard for people because we've tried something five years ago and they go, well, I tried this thing five years ago and it totally worked. And now I'm trying it again and it's not working. Well, we are a constantly evolving and moving physiology, a system. And so hormones may have been in a certain place there that are now in a different place today. And you have to meet your body where it's at. And that's not finding out a diet in 2009 and thinking that that diet's going to take you all the way to the end of your life in your peak state. It changes. So really the ultimate power lies in learning to understand your body's language and understanding what symptoms really mean or lack thereof so that you can navigate what you need right now coming from an internal place instead of that desperate seeking for someone to give us the answer that's within us, but we can't unlock it because we don't know how to speak our body's language. And it sounds much like intuition where it's the inside out approach right? Where education, experience, experimenting. I'm going to now call those the three E's from now and claim <laughs> <Love> that one. <laughs> but, but that it's this constant, one of the things I love about being alive is the constant experimentation. 
Does this feel good? Does that not feel good? Is this for me? Is that not for me? And it's great to have a guide. I'm not saying that it's all within, so stop looking. I mean, I am a coach. I have a private practice with coaches. We are guides. We will teach you not only, you know, what to do, but what to look for. But I'm very much a teach a man to fish or a woman to fish and she eats for her life versus give them a fish. I don't want to put you on just a specific diet right now and give you a sample menu and then send you on your way because you're going to be giving me money just to help you right in this moment. But what about 10 years from now? So um, yes, get a guide, but know that that person is simply helping you access the knowledge and intuition that is already within you. Well, Carly, I'm going to leave links to your website, links to the book. Um, and I really want to recommend your book to anyone who's, who anyone who's into personal growth wants to get a refresher in some really core principles, but also framed up within the life and within the vehicle that we're all riding around in, which is our body. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. It's an absolute pleasure. Yes, I just um, appreciate you for having the platform with which for us to share this information with people. So thank you. My pleasure. Yay. Yay. Fun. So fun. Thank you for listening to Free Your Inner Guru. I know you have a lot of choice where you receive your inspiration and information. If today's episode resonated with you, I'd be grateful if you would take a few extra seconds for three quick things. First, if there's an idea or story that you know would make a difference in someone else's life, follow the link in the show notes back to our website where you can easily share it with them. Second, subscribe so that you can be part of the ongoing conversation on whatever app or website you're listening on. Big conversations become the catalyst for meaningful change. If you happen to be listening on iTunes, please take a few moments to leave a rating and a review. The last thing I'll leave you with is that we are building a community of conscious leaders to engage in big conversations and support the Free Your Inner Guru podcast. To find out more, visit patreon.com forward slash freeyourinnerguru or support.freeyourinnerguru.com. Until next time, I'm Laura Tucker signing off for Free Your Inner Guru.